0: section twenty of life of john churchill duke of marlborough by louise Creighton. this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter ten political parties in england part one during the last years the political views of marlborough and godolphin had been slowly changing at the accession of anne they were both looked upon as firm tories And the fact that the war was supported by the Tories was mainly due to its being under the direction of a Tory general. But the war was in reality a Whig war. It was the expression of the policy of William III. It was the exact reverse of all that the stewards had done, and tended utterly to ruin the hopes still cherished by the Jacobites, as the most extreme Tories were called, that the pretender might some day be called to the throne. At first the Tories were willing to support a Whig war, because it was carried on by a Tory general, and the Whigs were willing to submit patiently to their exclusion from all important offices, because they saw that a Tory government was willing to carry on the war with vigour. But this state of things could not last. The government was soon forced to break with the most violent Tories rochester first and then nottingham lost their places which were filled up by more moderate men the government had to lean more and more upon the whigs for support in their policy the extreme tories lost no opportunity of attacking marlborough and godolphin whilst on the other hand the whigs as was natural began to weary of being kept from all share in the government between the two parties Godolphin, a man of no decision of character and with no firm convictions of his own, was hopelessly harassed and perplexed, whilst Marlborough, who cared little for party and only wished to be left free to carry on the war in his own way, grew daily more indignant with party intrigue and more determined to carry on the government by means of moderate men without regard to party. The Duchess was entirely on the side of the Whigs, who courted her that she might use her influence in their favour. A perpetual busybody, she mixed herself in everything, and lost no opportunity of stirring up Godolphin and Marlborough against the Tories, and urging them to favour the Whigs. She used her influence with Anne in the same way, and in no measured terms urged the cause of the Whigs on her royal mistress, whom she was accustomed to rule at her pleasure, but she miscalculated the strength of anne's obstinacy anne was a decided tory and before all things attached to the anglican church her great objection to the whigs was that they were too latitudinarian in their religious views and she was not to be bullied into bestowing her favour upon them the more she resisted the more overbearing the duchess became and there were times when it seemed as if the queen was wearying of the violent tyranny which her favourite exerted over her after the battle of blenheim the murmurs of the tories were lost in the general enthusiasm of the nation but when parliament met in the end of 1704 the violent tories found the means of secretly attacking the government by introducing a bill against occasional conformity the object of this bill was to prevent dissenters from qualifying themselves to fill posts in the government by receiving the sacrament as prescribed by the test act according to the rites of the anglican church and still continuing to frequent dissenting places of worship this bill had been first brought into the house in 1703 and had then been warmly supported by the government as it was in entire accordance with the decidedly high church opinions of the queen In the House of Commons, the Tories had a majority, and the bill passed easily, but was thrown out by the Whig majority of the House of Lords. The same thing happened in the next session, when the ardour of the government for the bill had decidedly cooled, and in 1704 the bill was brought forward a third time in direct opposition to the wishes of the government. This time, the extreme Tories wished to make victory certain. They tacked on to the bill against occasional conformity, a bill granting the land tax. It was a rule of the House that the lords could not amend a money bill. They must either accept or reject it as it stood. If, therefore, these two bills had gone up to the lords tacked together, the lords would have been obliged either to accept the occasional conformity bill or to throw the government into extreme confusion by refusing the necessary supplies this violent measure on the part of the extreme tories or tackers as they were now called disgusted the moderatories, who with harley at their head combined with the whigs to throw out the bill the occasional conformity bill alone easily passed the commons but was once more thrown out by the lords where even marlborough and godolphin voted with the whigs against it these proceedings completed the breach between Marlborough and Godolphin, and the extreme Tories. Marlborough expressed it as his opinion, that no quarter should be given to the tackers, and Godolphin wrote to the Duchess, Although there must be no present resentment shown, nor so much as threatened, yet I assure you, when the session is over, I shall never think any man fit to continue in his employment who gave his vote for the tack. The three years during which the Parliament was then entitled to sit, according to the Triennial Act, were at an end, and every effort was made by the Government to prevent the tackers from being returned at the new election. Still Marlborough, not quite satisfied with the results, wrote to the Queen from the Rhine, July 27, 1705. I find there are enough of the tackers and their adherents to stir everything that may be uneasy to your Majesty in the government, to prevent which I think your Majesty should advise with the Lord Treasurer what encouragement may be proper to give the Whigs, that they may look upon it as their own concern early to beat down and oppose all proposals of that sort before they come to any height. He went on to beg the Queen to let nothing interfere with the confidence she put in Godolphin, for he is the only man in England capable of giving such advice as may keep you out of the hands of both parties. Disgusted with the extreme Tories, and beginning to lean more decidedly toward the Whigs, Marlborough still clung to his hope of carrying on the government without placing it entirely in the hands of either party, but the Whigs were determined no longer to be kept out of office they were a strong and compact body at their head were five peers known as the junto who kept them together and guided their policy these were somers wharton halifax oxford and sunderland all men of distinguished ability and tried merit somers was perhaps the only one of the five who had any claims to real greatness in an age when nearly every statesman changed his politics if it suited his interest as easily as he changed his clothes he had remained from purely patriotic motives a firm adherent of whig principles he had made his way of life entirely by his own abilities and had first acquired notoriety by his able defence of the seven bishops in the reign of james the second he was a man of great culture and learning the friend and patron of locke and addison and master of all social graces as a lawyer he was learned and acute his eloquence called forth general admiration and both in speaking and writing his style was terse forcible and clear no heat of party animosity could ruffle his calm dignity no desire for personal advancement could make him untrue to his principles to him the whigs looked up as their real leader and it may have been perhaps the influence of his wise and sober character that kept them from going the same lengths in intriguing and caballing that the Tories did at that time. William III had at once recognized Summers' merit. He had made him Lord Chancellor and raised him to a peerage. He was the only one amongst the Whigs whom William really trusted and liked. At Anne's accession, he was excluded with the other Whigs from the Privy Council, but he showed no bitterness toward the government and continued to interest himself actively in politics, giving his warm support to all measures that he thought for the good of his country. Swift, while still an adherent of the Whigs, lauded Summers in the warmest terms. He dedicated to him the tale of the tub, and in his dedication says, There is no virtue, either of a public or private life, which some circumstances of your own have not often produced upon the stage of the world later on when he was using all his powers of invective against the whigs even he could not deny summer's great abilities he says i allow him to have possessed all excellent qualifications except virtue he had violent passions and hardly subdued them by his great prudence thomas lord wharton was a man of brilliant talents but of a dissolute and profligate character His father had been a covenanter, and he was brought up with all the strictness of the Puritans. From such surroundings the sudden plunge into the wild dissipation of London after the Restoration loosened for him, as it did for so many others, all moral ties. He became an open scoffer at religion and virtue, ribald and profane in his talk, and shameless in his manner of life. But his affable manners, his ready and eloquent speech, and shining abilities, made him extremely popular careless of everything else he was at all times a consistent whig and was lauded by his party as having been one of the main instruments in bringing about the revolution william III had rewarded his zeal by giving him various offices but could never feel real sympathy for a man of his character his exclusion from all share in the government after the accession of anne drove him into violent opposition which was only slightly moderated by somers's influence he reviled his opponents in coarse and unmeasured language and was in his turn looked upon by the tories as one of the most unprincipled and dangerous whigs swift says of him he was the most universal villain that ever i knew the whigs themselves could not look upon him as an altogether useful friend but spoke of him as a man could do more good or harm than any one else charles montague lord halifax though of good family had as younger son of a younger son of the earl of manchester begun life with no prospects and no resources but his own abilities his rise had been surprisingly rapid at the age of thirty directly after the revolution he obtained a seat in the house of commons and soon distinguished himself by his great skill in debate he devoted himself to the study of finance and at the age of thirty-seven became first lord of the treasury and chancellor of the exchequer he was the chief founder of the bank of england and the new east india company he restored the currency and established paper credit for some years he seemed to carry all before him his influence and his popularity were unbounded he was the leader of the majority and the most distinguished figure in the house of commons himself a cultivated man and having won some slight fame in his youth by his poems he was a patron and friend to men of letters especially to addison and isaac newton in seventeen hundred william made him lord halifax the title having become extinct by the death of the great trimmer but his popularity was already on the wane with all his intellect he had a weak head and his astonishing success had been too much for him his vanity and self-sufficiency made him ludicrous and difficult to work with the wits of the day made fun of the way in which he tried to make even his small person of importance by a majestic strut and imperious look later on when the whigs were no longer predominant His restless vanity and ambition made his party doubtful of his trustworthiness. He could not patiently endure the exclusion from office like Summers. End of section 20